Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Darling, this is the uh, this is the busy season for you at, at your day job. Mm-hmm. Now, usually when you hit your job's busy season, we get another entry in one of your long-standing serieses. Really? That's a trend? That is... <laughs> so, so that you can enter your research with a base level of knowledge. Oh, Sa- I didn't realize that your- was so predictable. Save yourself a little bit of time. Yeah. So I'm predicting that in this one, an orphanage is going to be taken up by a, a tornado and dropped in Lake Superior. What historical event is this? I need to know about it. I Hopefully, I just made that up and it doesn't exist. Got some Googling to do. <laughs> that is not what we are going to talk about. What are we going to talk about? But you are totally right that we are continuing a series. Yeah. Uh, and today, we are going to be tackling a long-awaited part of our Disney series. Oh? Disneyland, because people keep bugging me about, when am I going to do Disneyland? <laughs> And let's be honest, the reason I have it is because I've never been there. I understand where those people are coming from. If you're going to do a series of parks, it makes sense to start at the very beginning, as we've covered many times on this show. But I decided it's not a very good place to start. <laughs> so take that, Mary Poppins. It's a very good place to go fifth. Or not Mary Poppins. Sound of music. Sound of music. Yeah. Same person. <laughs> Duh. We're going to dive into Disneyland today. Uh-huh. Definitely not going to talk about all of it. No. But we're we're going to we're going to get a good feel. Well, there's a giant ecosystem of bloggers and and YouTube people ready to pick up the slack, I guess. So Disneyland, it opened in the summer of 1955. Mhm. You know, years before, uh Walt Disney had been playing with the idea of building a park. If you're not familiar, this is the first park he did. Yeah, let's let's do some baseline familiarity. Our previous parks episodes yes. have been about the, the four gates in Walt Disney World in Orlando. Yes. And we are talking about Disneyland in California, which came first. A, a theme park. Yes. In Anaheim, so near Los Angeles. Yes. Once they were in the same county. <laughs> what heady halcyon days those were. Yeah. The story often goes that, like, oh, Walt took his girls, like, often, you know, on, like, the weekend, they'd go, like, merry-go-rounds and stuff, and he'd watch them have a good time, and he'd think, you know, about how uh, there should be a place for families to go and have a nice, fun time together. And, like, that's how he came up with the idea of having a park. That makes it seem, like, that story makes it seem like he hated it. And the only fun he had was watching his daughters have fun. Like, there's nothing for me to do here. This is garbage. I gotta fix this. What about the whole family? Aren't I in this family? That's that's the story that's always attached, though. Oh, we went to this park, and it was sitting on that bench, and there's even, like, a plaque on that bench or something. (laughs) This is the very bench where Walt Disney decided our park sucks, and he has to do it right. (laughs) But a, a story that was released a couple days before Disneyland opened in 1955 by the Long Beach Independent Press Telegram. Uh-huh. That's a long name for a newspaper. They could shorten that. A few cents of the cover price was just for printing the title. Yeah, yeah. it was by letter, and they were like, dang. <laughs> it talked about some files um, from the Disney Burbank studio archives that had concept park sketches dating back to, like, 1932. Mm-hmm. 
um, which was, you know, four years after, like, Mickey Mouse cartoons first started, and a year before his first child was born. <laughs> so he was definitely thinking about it. He definitely mm-hmm. had thoughts. Yeah, okay, so maybe that bench, like, kind of kicked him in gear to, like, yeah. do it. But it was one step on a 23-year journey. Yes. Yeah. So the earliest documented draft of his plans were sent as a memo uh, to studio production designer Dick Kelsey uh, in August 1948. And it uh, referred to his concept as the Mickey Mouse Park. Oh. And then in... Uh, 1951, Walt had Harper Goff uh, draw illustrations of a potential theme park to be built across the street from his Burbank studio. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, Harper was an American artist, musician, and actor. Um, During World War II, he was actually an advisor to the U.S. Army on camouflage. (laughs) Apparently, like, he made a lot of, was known for making, like, paint and paint colors, and he developed a set of paint colors that were used as the standard issue hues for camouflage. So all your, like, World War II reenactors yeah. are basically in Disney cosplay. Yes. And they don't even know it. Yes. <laughs> um, and later in the war, uh, Harper worked for the U.S. Navy, and he was working on, like, trying to confuse the silhouette of ships. Mm-hmm. Like those weird angular paint patterns yeah. on boats? Were those his, or were those, like, it's later pro- generations of things that ass- he worked on? I assume that's, like, the concept? I don't mm-hmm. know if those were his or not. Okay. Kind of interesting. Yeah. Um. So after the war, he moved to California and worked as a set designer for Warner Brothers. Um, and he was a lifelong model train enthusiast. Uh, and if... I don't know, you've listened to our other episodes, it's probably come up several times that Walt was really into trains. It, it's weird how much he shows up in our previous episodes. They're all about things that happened after he died. Well, he really liked trains. He in really case liked those trains. You haven't listened to those episodes first. He always had an interest in them, but it was like, as an adult, he had um, some injuries, uh, and he could no longer like play polo with his brother. He needed, like, a new hobby, and that's when he really got into, like, model trains. Yeah. And just started, like, you know, collecting. and. Mm -hmm. So um, he actually, Harper and Walt met shortly before Harper started working on this project um, at a London model train making shop. (laughs) Um, They were both wanted to buy, like, the same train. So they were both working in the film business in Southern California. Yeah. But their meet cute happened to be in London. At a train shop. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Cool. Cool. Uh, So Harper joined uh, Walt Disney Studios and worked for them on and off uh, until his death in 1993. Uh, He is credited with many different effects that were used in certain movies, such as like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. The film actually got like two Oscars for color art direction and best special effects. Congratulations. Well, okay. So at the time, mm-hmm. Art Directors Union had a bylaw within the Academy that stated only union art directors could win. So the Academy gave the award of best art direction to Harper's assistant, John Meehan, since he <laughs> had a union card uh-huh. and Harper didn't have a union card. Well, what are you doing working in the industry? Get out of here. I don't like Harper anymore. Anyways, he also did the art direction for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. In case oh, that's nice. thought that was cool. Harper illustrated Walt's concept for pre-Disneyland land. Mickey Mouse Park. Mickey Mouse Park. Over in Burbank. Yes. 
It had a lot of concepts within it that we now would see in the Disneyland we know, mm-hmm. such as a railroad, of course. Of course. They're train fans. Steamboat, a castle. Um, it had some stuff we wouldn't see, such as Granny's Farm. Um, <laughs> there was this one concept art picture well, that was really that, interesting. That's the distinguished competition, actually. Yeah. <laughs> There was a, a cool concept art for, like, an old mill. Mm-hmm. Uh, that looks very much like the mill from the cartoon. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had, like, duck boats that went around, like, the moat. Like, you rode in a duck boat. Oh, Like cute. a little paddle boat. Yeah. Like, like a duck. Yeah. And then the mill wheel was, like, a Ferris wheel. Oh, that's cool. It was really cute. Yeah. <laughs> the plot of land that uh, he was looking at in mm-hmm. Burbank, across from the studio, uh, was only about 16 acres. Not very large. So the park didn't happen there for a couple reasons. One of which was this idea had grown so much, Mm -hmm. it really wouldn't work on that tiny plot of land. It was more than 16 acres worth of ideas. Yes. Also, he was kind of like, well, maybe we could start there. Maybe it could be something. Presented the idea to the city of Burbank, and they're like, no. (laughs) No, we do not want some carnies hanging out in our city. Mm -hmm. No. We already got all these, like, actors and stuff. And that's That's bad enough. enough. Yeah. Yeah. So they rejected his proposal. So that was, you know, a bit of a blow. (laughs) Uh, The idea was also not something that was supported by a lot of people within involvement with Disney. Like, a lot of people within the company were kind of like, I don't know. Yeah, how how are you going to pay for it? Yeah. Roy, was his brother, was even like, this is going to ruin us? Because it is... One of a kind, or, you know, it, it was. It was yes. the first of its kind. Yes. Uh, I mean, you know, like, different types of... Except maybe Knott's Berry Farm, but... Well, different types <laughs> of amusement parks existed, but yeah, this yeah. was, like, the first concept of, like, a theme park. Mm-hmm. That didn't exist. Even that is disputed, but yes. Okay, yes. No- nothing to the scale of the this. The scale, yeah. yeah. But... Well, was still going with this idea. So in 1952, uh, WED Enterprises was founded. We talked about this in one of our other episodes, I believe. Yes. Um, it was what became eventually uh, the Imagineers. Yes. And so the creative team was in operation. And in 1953, Walt hired uh, Stanford Research Institute to examine and scout out possible locations for development. Um, for Disneyland in Southern California, taking into account, you know, locations and typical weather and traffic and all these different things. Traffic's got to be a big concern. I mean, back then, not so much. Well, if you're planning to have enough people come every year. It has to be someplace that's accessible. Yeah. Also good sewer lines. (laughs) You can build those. Sturdy electrical grid. Uh, So within a couple months, a site was found in Anaheim. 160 acres of orange groves, orange groves and walnut trees. And it was going to be right alongside um, a new Santa Ana freeway. Yeah, see? So. Told you, it's important. So let's, let's talk about Anaheim. Let's talk about bit. Anaheim. Uh, Anaheim is a city in Orange County, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is now the most uh, populous city in that county. Mm-hmm. It was founded uh, by 50 German-American families in 1857, who relocated from San Francisco looking for a place to grow grapes. Okay, they should have gone much farther north then, <laughs> according to my knowledge of California. Ah. They, they missed it. They missed it. They should have stayed where they were. They, that, 
that's not grape country. <laughs> what are you doing? They got lost. I, th- I think they got lost. Uh, so it was uh, incorporated as the second city in Los Angeles County in 1876. Uh, and later, Orange County split off from Los Angeles County in 1889. It was a very large rural and agricultural community right up until when Disneyland came. <laughs> Uh, one of the local landowners, uh, Bennett Payne Baxter, uh, actually came up with a new way to irrigate orange groves and shared it with other people within the community. And that helped grow, um, you know, the agriculture in the area. And they named the new county after him. <laughs> well, not no. really. You'd never know it. In the 1920s, Anaheim had an experience of being taken over by the KKK. <laughs> Members of the KKK were elected to uh, city council, uh, which had previously been controlled by mostly Mm German-Americans. Once they were in the city council, they fired all city employees who were known Catholics and replaced them with KKK members and tried to enforce prohibition. Unfortunately, I guess, unfortunately, that was, like, the thing that got people, like, no... (laughs) we're not letting you do this we're not going with prohibition Mm -hmm. screw you because that's the thing that that's the problem with the clan they don't know how to have a good time Um, that's why I'm like unfortunately that's the reason but fortunately it also was because it made people do stuff I mean you say a takeover but like they were voted in I think people knew what they were getting into yeah well Luckily, there were people who opposed them Mm -hmm. and uh, offered a bribe to someone to get a list of all their members and expose them Mm -hmm. and who was running for in the state primary. Uh, And they were able to take back the local government by some special election they had the following year. Uh And then the KKK collapsed in the area because of that and losing a suit over uh, something with the newspaper Mm-hmm. And it just all fell apart. <laughs> they they had control for a year, mm-hmm. and it ended, and that's good. <laughs> that is good. Just thought it was a weird bit of Anaheim history. <laughs> how how come uh, they didn't name the hockey team after that? Why would they? <laughs> Why would they? Why do you think they would? <laughs> just some interesting local color. Jumping ahead, mm-hmm. you know, thirty some years. Disney had his site. He had his land. Uh, The next step was funding. Uh, So network executives had been approaching him for a long time about doing a TV show. Mm -hmm. uh, And he had always pretty much refused. But now he was thinking that his greatest chance at finding backers were going to be in the TV industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he created the concept of Walt Disney's Disneyland, which was a show that ran from 1954 to 1958. And then continued on in, like, other forms that we've talked about in our one uh, one episode about live action stuff. Yes. But he approached uh, NBC and CBS with this concept, and they both turned him down. ABC, however, was kind of desperate for programming <laughs> uh, and signed a deal to loan Disney money in return for a third ownership in Disneyland uh, and the promise of a weekly Disney TV show. Mm-hmm. So with this, uh, construction began on July 16th, uh, 1954, and the Disneyland show started on October 27th. The show each week featured programs from 
the different lands of the park, uh-huh. uh, including progress reports and actual construction footage. We're going to link um, the first episode in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually very interesting because it's so much of it is like set up. Yeah. They're not diving into it as though like this is a show that is just happening. <laughs> you, know, you know, sometimes shows. It's not in media res, you say. Yeah. They, they take the time to introduce Disneyland. Mm-hmm. That there is, they show like a big park model. Mm-hmm. They start to show some footage of the site, and then they go into talking about each of the different lands. And it's not just talking about the different lands of Disneyland, but talking about the programming that they're making in connection to each of those lands. So, like Frontierland, let's talk about Davy Crockett. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tomorrowland, let's talk about this weird little cartoon character that we're creating that's going to talk about space travel, <laughs> because we don't actually have any program to create about this. Different things like that. The first episode's very much just a commercial for the show. Whereas subsequent episodes were a commercial for the place. Yes. <laughs> and for, you know, the company. It's, it's like a really successful attempt at, like, synergy and integration of different product lines, essentially. Yeah. And if Warner Brothers had the idea and thought it would have worked, they'd have done the same thing. <laughs> Paramount would have done the same thing. Th- throughout that entire year of construction, the show continued on giving updates. Mm-hmm. And Disneyland opened on Sunday, July 17th, 1955, um, with a special international press preview. 366 days of construction. Yeah. Like, it's honestly freaking Mm mind-blowing that they did all that Mm -hmm. in a year. And to see, like, to look at, like, the construction photos and images of any time they just build one of these new parks, Mm -hmm. it's insane. Yeah. Because they really do just, like, dig everything up. They're creating (laughs) piles of land. Like, buildings are going up and everything around it's just dirt. Mm Mm-hmm. And Six Flags Great America couldn't get one ride <laughs> constructed in in their uh, off season. Yeah, had to wait till the Fourth of July weekend. Let alone an entire park. <laughs> this press preview night was um, an invited guests only. Mm-hmm, uh, Six thousand mm-hmm. tickets were mailed out to studio workers, construction workers, sponsors, press. The dedication. And parade and events of that night were covered by ABC with a 90-minute special called Dateline Disneyland. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are also going to link this, because you can watch the whole thing on YouTube as well. Is it, is or is it not, a fiasco? Live TV is still a freaking fiasco. (laughs) So, like, it's no worse than when they try to cover the Thanksgiving parade here. It, it's got some warts and bumps, you might say. Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, and it was the also considered the largest and most complex broadcast to date. You're going nationally live. For 90 minutes. 90 minutes long, Ac- many different shooting locations. Yes. Across a park that is also trying to operate yeah. for these 6,000 hand-picked guests. Yes. 
So yes, it there it is a fiasco. <laughs> there are a lot of people not knowing that they were supposed to be on camera. There's one moment when like Walt starts talking and then they tell him to stop and he's like, "Oh, I thought I had the signal." He did have the signal. He's been filming this whole thing. <laughs> um, a lot of different stuff not going right, but considering mm-hmm. it's not bad. Um, so it was hosted uh by Art Linklater. Ronald Reagan and Bob Cummings. What happened the, to those guys? The Ronald Reagan. Oh, okay. Like the president. <laughs> Another guy that didn't like unions. No. Despite being in one, unlike some set designers I can mention. <laughs> the broadcast, um, what they do is they Walt comes in on a train with Mickey. Of course there's a train. And let's let's just pause for a second that the like costume characters in 1955 are like <laughs> the scariest freaking thing I've ever seen. There's weird carved out parts of their face for mesh. And not like normal like what we're used to now. It's just like weird chunks of their face are missing. Technology's come a long way. There is, you might say. There is kind of an amazing Dumbo costume, though. Yeah? Yes. Okay. Like, Dumbo waltzing down the street's pretty cute. So he comes in, there's a big, like, opening dedication ceremony, mm-hmm. and then they go and, like, introduce all the lands and do individual dedications at those lands. <laughs> they break a bottle of sparkling grape juice because there's no alcohol allowed. <laughs> Oh, we're going to talk about a, a, a bottle that's broken later. Oh, okay. Um, but right now, darling, would you like to read the original dedication? To all to come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here, age relives fond memories of the past, and here, youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America, with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to the world. There's there's a flag ceremony. Mm-hmm. I think it was the governor was very like, America! And I'm like, oh my gosh, take it down a notch. Of all the people in this park, <laughs> you are not the one that's going to be president someday. You, you can show. <laughs> you can dial it back a bit. Throughout this whole footage, there's a lot of children running. <laughs> there's a lot of like stampeding children. Well, there's there's a teacup ride. <laughs> I've never seen one before. <laughs> what uh, we don't see on this footage, though, mm-hmm. is all the other things going wrong this day. <laughs> Opening day was a hot freaking mess. How hot was it? A hundred degrees, actually. Yeah. We're gonna talk about that. So, uh, yeah. So that day. It was really hot. Mm-hmm. They were still finishing stuff, such as paint was drying, trees were being planted that morning, asphalt had just been poured, last minute fixes. There was an issue with counterfeit tickets. So they were originally expecting about 11,000 people. 28,000 people showed up with tickets. Uh-huh. Uh, and because of the larger crowds, there was issues with parking and traffic, and they ran out of food and drinks, which was a problem because it was really hot, and also a problem because there was a plumber's strike during the construction of Disneyland, so they had to decide, like, are we going to have working bathrooms for opening day? Are we going to have water fountains? And they went with bathrooms, which is definitely the better choice, Sure, but it also meant, like, we've run out of beverages, Uh, and there's not water. And it's 100 degrees. And it's 100 degrees. (laughs) Many rides broke down. 
There was a gas leak in Fantasyland that led to that area being shut down for a part of the day. Mm-hmm. It's a whole lot of stuff. Walt didn't really know all this was going on through the day. <laughs> he found out later when the press was writing all about it, and they're mm-hmm. like, "Oh, this is this is not going to last long. Yeah, this is, this is not good." But they quickly went to work fixing everything, and the press was invited back. Mm-hmm. To see things in working order. They they must have fixed it because I'm looking at a news article for the 60th anniversary in 2015, estimating a daily attendance of 44,000 people. Yeah. So if 28 caused such a problem then, there's been improvements. It was a big problem then too because they also like just weren't expecting that many. Right, right. It was right. supposed to be a soft opening. It, it was one of many problems. Yeah. Yeah. So the park officially opened to the public uh, the next day, on July 18th, 1955. Uh, people were lining up outside the gates at 2 a.m. Now, if they had waited to leave, they would have had time to read their morning newspaper and maybe decided not to go. <laughs> and, uh, apparently, they worked overnight uh, yeah, on a yeah. lot of these things, and it, it just got better each day. And with that, we're going to take a break. And we'll be back to talk a bit more about some specific rides and places within Disneyland. Hello! Oh, hi there. I didn't see you. Was this a bit I didn't understand? It's a bit I didn't understand. Okay. Uh, so we are gonna uh, look at some of the opening day attractions. Yeah, what was there to do if it was working and you didn't have heat stroke? Uh, one of the things that you could do was go on Autopia. Well, the Tomorrowland Speedway of Disneyland. Mm-hmm. You got some in the gasoline little, car. little cars. Yeah, with a little track. Yeah, that you drive around and it's really boring and really smelly and pretty terrible. Built by Aerodynamics. One thing I've always questioned <laughs> yeah. with this ride was like, well, at least with like the Tomorrowland Speedway, and the Autopia one's very similar, is how is it futuristic? We're well, talking about Tomorrowland. Yeah. It's just some cars. <laughs> well, highways were still pretty new. There's the brand new one that went right next door. Yes. When this opened, it was a year before the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956, was also called the National Interstate and Defense Highways Act. Mm-hmm. Um, what that did was originally authorize $25 billion in construction for 41,000 miles of interstate highway systems. Mm-hmm. So there were highways that you know existed. But there wasn't as much of these interconnecting, like, things that we know mm-hmm. today. Right. And, like, multi-lane highways were still pretty new. So that's kind of why it's, like, still, like, oh. <laughs> the, the wave of the future is a ribbon of... Easy-to-drive roads that will get mm-hmm. us from here to there. And they're multi-lane and they're big and everyone will have these cars and we'll drive across the country. And not so much just, like, driving from here to there. It does seem like more fun than another uh, opening day attraction in Tomorrowland. Uh, The Clock of the World, which could tell you what time it was. Cool. Or the Aluminum Hall of Fame. Love that aluminum. (laughs) Well, before we talk more about rides, I was really, when I was looking this up about this highway act, I was like, why does it say defense? Mm -hmm. That's weird. It's a little weird. 
Two reasons why was part of the funding was diverted from the defense funds. Mm -hmm. And the other part was most of the U.S. Air Force bases were going to have a direct link to the system of interstates. Uh-huh. And it was a stated reason for doing this was to provide access in case of attack to the Air Force bases from where you were. So the Cold War brought us not only the space program, but also interstate highway infrastructure. Yeah, because we got to be able to get to our Air Force bases as quickly as possible. Can I get somebody from ISIS to go on the record and say they love it when bridges in America collapse under their own age because there's no bridge inspectors? Is, yeah. Would that work, maybe? Maybe. Uh, please? Please? <laughs> got to fix those bridges. I just want an international terrorist boogeyman to to send a videotape to the CIA saying that uh, every time an American goes bankrupt from medical debt, they win. Can we get that to happen? Yeah, that'd be good. That'd be good. So originally, uh, the these cars mm-hmm. in Autopia um, were tested uh, without any type of bumpers. They were just going to be little cars. That's a sign of faith in humanity. <laughs> uh, well, they were nearly destroyed during mm-hmm. testing. So then they went through several stages where they added like, well, let's try these bumpers. Mm, still some damage. Well, let's try some guardrails. Okay, ah. that helps. Well, let's try some spring-loaded bumpers as well. Okay, now we're good. <laughs> yeah, a little too much faith, I think, uh, was being put there. And in their brakes, which they do or don't have. I'm not sure. Especially the, you know, 1955 version. So there was also uh, the railroad, which we talked yes, about. very important. Uh, that opened with two stations. To cut costs, mm-hmm. a sponsorship deal was arranged. Uh, so they arranged a deal with the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe Railroad, uh, which was finalized in March 1955. So the Disneyland Railroad was named the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was known as that until September 20th, 1974, when the agreement ran out. How many people got on board wondering when they would get to Santa Fe? When do we hit the switch station? Is that why they built, made a musical about Santa Fe? No. Everyone wants to go to Santa Fe! <laughs> So, uh, the train, uh-huh. uh, was made by, uh, Roger Bogie, uh, and the Walt Disney Studios, the Walt Disney Studios machine shop. Uh, they actually used the design of Walt's, uh, Walt's one-eighth scale miniature, which was called Lily Bell. Mm-hmm. And that was, like, this very small train that he had on, like, his property. One-eighth scale. Yeah. It's pretty small. Um, so they used those designs, but enlarged it. Mm-hmm. But it's still not the size of, like, a full train. Yeah. That train was based off some other train that was based off this other train. Like, it's like they kept, like, honey, I shrunk and blew up the train. <laughs> there's like, there's a legacy. We took a big train and we made it small and we did it big and now it's based off the small one that now we're making bigger, but not fully big. Mm-hmm. It's confusing. A weird game of train telephone. Yeah. Train lephone. Yeah. Roger, who designed it, was considered the first, like, Disney Imagineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also saw, oversaw the development of the Disneyland monorail and the Matterhorn bobsleds. That's cool. Yeah. 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 He was involved in stuff. He was involved. Also manufactured by Aerodynamics. Huh? 
the Matterhorn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's why they're credited with yes. inventing... I wasn't uh, sure what you were talking about, because I named, like, three things. Tubular steel roller coaster truck. Oh, okay. I named yeah. those kind of like three things. Uh, so there's also the Mark Twain Riverboat. Um, Signed by Mark Twain himself at the dedication <laughs> ceremony. Uh, it was the first functional paddle wheeler built in the U.S. in 50 years. Ooh. Uh, so they had to do a lot of research. Because, <laughs> like, no one was used to building those for a while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the lost art of riverboat paddle wheels. Yeah. As a reminder from our Disney World episode, because I think we talked about this there, uh, the paddle boat they have, and the same with this one, they run out of track. Okay. Through the river, so they yeah. are not just, like, a free-going boat. There's a track hidden underneath. Mm -hmm. It's also surprisingly shallow water. So, speaking of the water level levels... Uh, the first day that they attempted to fill the river, the riverbed soaked up all the water. <laughs> so they had to uh, add a different type of clay as a soil stabilizer oh. uh, to stop it from just soaking up all the water. So they did that, and then they were able to fill it on the second try, and it was fine. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Mark Twain made its maiden voyage on July 13th, 1955 which was four days before Disneyland opened. Um, Cutting it close there, buddy. It, it was actually a private party uh, for Walt and Lillian for their 30th anniversary. Aww. Yeah. He also named a train after her. Yeah. Uh, so in the TV special, um, actress Irene Dunn, who was in the movie Showboat. Uh -huh, yeah, I get it. Uh, it christens the boat with a bottle filled with water from the major American rivers. Says who? That's I would like they, to see some provenance. Like, well, prove like, it. Okay, in the prove it. In the future, when they open, it's a small world. Like, there's a whole ceremony where they're like, "We're dumping in water from places around the world," and I'm yeah. like, "Are you sure it's not just from like a tap?" Prove it. I yeah. want to. I want to see. I Certificates of authenticity. I want to see live video feeds. Well, as something... Wax seals. As an example of something that goes wrong, she has trouble breaking the bottle. <laughs> so so is that then why they call that, like, the rivers of America? Because there's a little Mississippi, a little Missouri. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A little Ohio River in there. Also, like, what's built around it is, like, different parts of Americana yeah, type stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, the Mark Twain did not have a great start of it. <laughs> they had not uh, set capacity, like maximum capacity for the boat. Mm -hmm. And on its first voyage, uh, the crowd moved so quickly from one side of the boat to the other that it listed and almost tipped. It totally tipped over. People were caught <laughs> under decks. It's the deadliest disaster in Great Lakes history. Oh, wait, we did that episode, yeah, didn't we? Yeah, okay. yeah, we did. That's early days. Um, and then a few days later, it almost completely capsized when they allowed over 500 people on board. <laughs> that, like, okay, I know you didn't do the math, but you could have eyeballed it. Yeah. That's too many people. Um, and at one point it also got loose of the tracks and then got stuck in the mud and like all these <laughs> things were happening. Um, so they, they finally set a cap of 300 people. Uh -huh, and uh -huh. uh, that is still the number that is in effect to this day. 
Well, it is the same boat after all. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. expect that to well, change. Well, you know, safety standards can change. Usually That's true. Th- they start to put more restrictions on things. It is it is 21st century California, not 1950s California. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Another opening day attraction was uh, Sleeping Beauty's Castle, mm-hmm. of course, uh, which is only 77 feet high. You say only, but like, I don't own anything that tall. <laughs> but like, you think it's taller. Because of all their great, like, messing with your depth perception. Forced perspective. Yes, thank is, you. That's what I'm term. looking for. Yeah. That's the term. Uh, it was designed by Roland E. Hill. Uh, and originally, the upper level of the castle was empty and was never intended to house anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but Walt was like, I don't like that. <laughs> it Imagineers should, do better. It should do something. Yes. Yeah. Makes sense to uh, me. So starting in April of 1957, uh, people were able to walk through the castle and view dioramas of the story of Sleeping Beauty. Oh. They were able to like climb up, go upstairs, mm-hmm, everything. Mm-hmm. The official ribbon cutting uh, was led by Walt Disney and Shirley Temple Black. Mm-hmm. Now, the dioramas were originally done in the style of Ivan Earl, who was the production designer on the 1959 movie. Um, His art is so good. So it was all based on his concept art Mm -hmm. and like the art that they're making as that movie's coming out. It it stayed that way through until 1977 when they were redone to match the window displays on Main Street, which is very unfortunate. (laughs) Um, The walkthrough actually closed on October 7th, 2001. Mm-hmm. But in 2008, uh, Disney reopened it in the original style of the dioramas, but with like new technology. So they took the art mm-hmm. style that was originally used, but then now they have like interactive That's aspects. That's cool. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm really glad that they brought it back mm-hmm. to like that style because, yeah, his art's amazing. It's the reason to watch the dang movie. Yes. Um, they also updated it a bit, too, with adding, like, ADA-compliance stuff, and there's, like, a spot on the first floor you can view basically all the stuff you would view up top, because mm-hmm. you can't, you know, because they couldn't add an elevator, and you can't go, if you can't go up the stairs, you're not going right. to see it all. So they have a space where you can view everything that would be up top. Until this moment, until a few minutes ago, I did not realize that Sleeping Beauty Castle was four years older than the Sleeping Beauty film. Yeah. And the the, the first two years worth of visitors to the walkthrough attraction got a preview of what that film was going to be. Yeah. That's cool. As far as money coming into the studio, like the, the part that Disney put up helped pay for this park. Well... It it would make more sense from that perspective to make a Cinderella castle. But don't you want to advertise for your up-and-coming movie? Four years? That is, that oh. is future-proofing. Okay, well then let's talk about how in the opening episode of Disneyland, mm-hmm. the show, they show a clip of artists drawing like concept stuff for mm-hmm. Sleeping Beauty <laughs> as an actress dressed as her dances around yeah, to yeah. capture movement. Like it's already interplaced mm-hmm. in 1954. I'm, yeah, th- these, especially, you know, the the big animated films while Walt was alive had huge development cycles. Yeah. 
but like as an attraction you wouldn't see that these days no you you would not see like a ride for you know pixar's new movie coming out before there's a poster but you could meet elsa and anna a good six months before <laughs> that movie came out and we were idiots and didn't <laughs> never gonna let that go huh no, because then it was like a 12-hour wait, apparently. <laughs> and you know what? Frozen 2 is coming out now, so I have to wait another, like, at least four years for those lines to die down. <laughs> I love you. I love you, too. So anyways, let's talk about King Arthur's Carousel. Let's talk about King Arthur's Carousel. <laughs> One thing I always love about carousels yes. is that they usually predate wherever they are. That's so true. And I love it. This carousel uh, was originally built in 1922 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, by William Denzel uh, and was at the Sunnyside Beach Park in Toronto, Ontario uh, until that park closed. Mm-hmm. It was bought for Disneyland and refurbished um, by the Aero Development Company. I didn't know you were going to mention so yeah. I've just been doing it for my own pleasure. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Um, so it was widened uh, from three courses to four. Mm-hmm. So that's what they call when there's like, how many horses are lined up? It's courses. Oh. Because they're going in like a course. Courses of horses. Yeah. Uh, of courses of courses. Of course, of course. How many courses are there of horses? Four now. Four now, yeah. 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 Um, and this was to increase capacity. Mm-hmm. So uh, the majority of the... Uh, 71 horses and one mule. I don't know why they just have one mule, but they do. Uh, Especially. Uh, the majority of them were carved by the Denzel factory. Um, some of the additional horses were gotten from carousels across North America, including um, from a Stein and Goldstein carousel and some from Coney Island. Some of them arrived in... All kinds of conditions, uh, including, like, newspaper-stuffed papier-mâché the legs. Now that I believe. Yeah. I believe that there are horses from all over on the carousel. They they had a lot to fix. Mm -hmm. Um, They also had stuff they had to do because Walt wanted an all-jumping carousel. So they Mm -hmm. wanted all the horses to be in, like, jumping stance. Yeah. Um, So standing horses were converted to jumping horses by carving new legs. Mm-hmm. The hand-carved wooden chariot benches that were originally on it were removed, and then the woodwork was repurposed into the decorative elements of the cars of Casey Jr.'s circus train. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Which is another ride that's there. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. So that opened later that month. In 1955, like, it's not considered an opening day attraction because it didn't open till the end of July. Right. So, um, in 1975, all the horses were repainted white um, due to the popularity (laughs) of the one single white horse that was on it. Mm -hmm. They're like, well, let's just make them all that way. Yeah. People stop fighting for one. Uh, I'm going to fight for the one mule, though. I'm going to find that mule. Uh, So the King Arthur Carousel in 1983 was actually moved slightly backwards to make room for other attractions. So was this part of like the the new fantasy land that Disneyland had where they like built new uh, queues and facades for a bunch of things? Yes. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 They they also repainted the horses at that time. Mm -hmm. 
Um, in 2003, it got very much refurbished with an entirely <laughs> uh, new rebuilt turntable platform. It became computerized, which allowed it to stop in the exact same spot every time. It makes it easier for me to find my mule. <laughs> um, they also removed a row of horses to add a bench and wheelchair clamps to make it accessible. Fantastic. Um, and in 2010, uh, they actually um, lengthened the stirrups on the outer horses, um, adding additional loops to make it more accessible mm -hmm. as well. And in case you're curious, each horse has a name. <gasps> There's a list. Do you want to see the list? I want to see the list. Jingles is King oh, Arthur Carousel's oh. famous lead horse. Let's talk about Jingles. Jingles? You have facts about Jingles? Oh, I, yes, I do. Jingles hid Mickey and Oh, wait, I didn't even realize that this thing, like, this website goes into such detail about every single freaking horse. Talks about the saddle and the chest and the hooves and everything. So in 2005, for the 50th anniversary, uh, Jingles was completely painted gold with, like, I think it was 18 karat gold stuff. Oh, Jingles, you've been tanning. Yeah, Jingles uh, went crazy. <laughs> uh, Jingles no longer is completely covered in gold, but they have <laughs> left like his gold elements. Ah. Yeah. Okay, this doesn't say which one's the mule. Maybe the mule doesn't exist anymore. Sacrilege. I don't know, but I, I read that there was a mule. Okay. There's you a know. there's a treasure trove of information about these carousel horses. I could have done a whole episode on the carousel horses. That's that, how much information there is. That's why I was saying you don't have to make the be-all, end-all, comprehensive Disneyland episode. Everyone has done it for it's me. It's all out there. Like There's enough people who are obsessed with one thing that you can drill down to infinite depth with any single thing um so some other uh opening day rides uh mr told's wild ride peter pan's flight uh the jungle cruise mad tea party um snow white's scary adventure storybrook land uh canal boats there's other stuff like you know the band and the main entrance and i'm like how is that an attraction why does that make it on list but it does you don't want to talk about the wizard of bras Oh, we could. <laughs> that was like a legit, like, underwear shop that existed on Main Street. <laughs> it doesn't anymore, but that was a thing. <laughs> I like the name. Yeah. We're, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some expansions and other things that existed and were okay, added. Okay, okay. Um, such as the Indian Village. Well, Frontierland had to have something. Yeah. Big Thunder Mountain didn't exist yet. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, in Frontierland, uh, some things say 1955, but the majority of stuff says this was introduced in 1956, so mm -hmm. it seems like people, like, disagree. Maybe it's a soft opening situation. Yeah. An Indian village existed with, uh, Indian war canoes, which have since been renamed the Davy Crockett Explorer Canoes since 1971, which is a much better name. Mm -hmm. Um... Are they declaring war on Burbank, I guess? I guess. Like, you didn't want our park! We're gonna get you! Ha ha ha! <laughs> That's what it would have to be. Sure, yeah. sure. We're taking all the money! Uh, Tourists are gonna come here, not there! No, no, they're, they're going to war with the little tribe of miniatures in the Peter Pan ride. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, so they also had uh, like a, a dance circle where tribal dances were performed and they boasted about having full-blooded Indians on display. How many of them were actually Italian? I don't know <laughs> about there, that. There is precedent. But we are going to talk about one man. Okay. Uh, who was very interesting. Uh, he appeared as the one of the chiefs mm-hmm. for a while. Uh, and his name was Truman Washington Daly. Uh, he was born in 1898 uh, and passed away in 1996. Um, he was actually the last native speaker of the Otoe Missouri dialect of Chiware, um, which was a Native American language that was uh, spoken by several uh, different people who originated around the Great Lakes region, but then they moved into the Midwest in the Plains. Mm-hmm. So he was born in, or born on a reservation in Oklahoma Territory. Long before the state of Oklahoma days. Yes. And in the 20s, he married uh, Lavina Koshiwe. Her her father was one of the founders of the Native American Church, mm-hmm. which like bridged Christian beliefs with Native American beliefs and spirituality. Mm-hmm. So in the 30s, they were conducting their own church services, and over the next uh, several decades, he uh, worked in administrative offices for the Native American Church of Oklahoma and the Native American Church of the U.S. And in the 60s, he worked for Disneyland uh, as the announcer of the American Indian programs. Um, Walt hired him, and he used his own name uh, for one of the shows, Um, so... White Horse was one of his, the English version of one of his Native American names. And mm-hmm. so he went by Chief White Horse. And I tried to find, like, information on, like, how did he end up there? Yeah. Like, what led him there? But I couldn't find anything. Mm-hmm. And I actually came across, like, some chat pages where um, a descendant of his was actually trying to find, like, some more information on his time at Disneyland. Because mm-hmm. they're like, we had this like brochure that featured him like had pictures of him but we've lost it and we're trying to find more images of when he worked there yeah but they like didn't have any other like information on his time there and it's really interesting because after he uh left california in the 1970s um like he went on to teach um the language um Mm -hmm. to different um you know, Native American groups, and he served as a consultant for the University of Missouri when they were doing a Native American project to record his language. Mm-hmm. He did all these things in, in testifying in D.C. for Native American rights. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, what was this time at Disneyland? What was <laughs> this? How did you end up there? What made you like do that? The The context has changed so much that, like, it's very strange to think that people zoos weren't done by the mid-50s. Yes. Like, a tourist attraction that was so anticipated, its opening was a 90-minute piece of national news. Yeah. Had a people zoo. Yes. <laughs> but at the same time, like, you you did the research, not me, but it's, at, at a guess, it seems like this guy and, and others like him joining in it saw it less as uh, the, the exploitative side and more like a chance to preserve and demonstrate old ways that have been and are being stripped away for these tens of thousands of people every day. Like, that's all I can think, maybe? 
be, especially because... Because, like, this dude is plugged in. Like, he is an advocate. He knows his stuff. Yeah, like, and he's... <laughs> and he said yes. He took the job. Yeah, so it was what I was trying to, like, to figure out. Because there is so much of it that was, like, looking back is, like, oh my god, that's mm-hmm. so, like, cringeworthy. Yeah. It makes me so uncomfortable. But then... Here is a person who can pass on his traditions, and, like, did he choose to do it because it was a chance? I don't know. I would love to learn more. I struggled in finding stuff. Or as today, you couldn't possibly do this, and shouldn't possibly do this, without uh, being sure that it was uh, indigenous peoples getting the money at the end of the day, and controlling the message every single step of the way, including merchandising, and every single step. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so some of the stuff he had his hand in, hands in afterwards was in 1974, he uh, testified in D.C. regarding ceremonial uses of feathers and other objects um, in opposition of the migratory bird law. Mm-hmm. He also testif- testified before the U.S. Senate uh, Select Committee on Indian Affairs in 1978, um, which resulted in the American Indian Religious Freedom Act. And then again in 1992, at the age of 93, regarding the ceremonial use of peyote, uh, resulting in an amendment to legislation that allowed official Native American use. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, he was doing a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just thought it was so interesting, because, like, I started down the path of looking at this, and I really thought it was just... Yeah. Going to be a bunch of Italian dudes. Yeah. Um, and then I just found this really interesting thing about, mm-hmm. you know, this man. It's, I want to know more about him. It certainly makes the, gives those shows an air of, like, legitimacy that like, it's very easy to dismiss them, as, dismiss them as not having, not knowing the history of at least one of their performers. Yeah. I, I wonder how many more uh, denizens of the Indian village... Uh, uh, had had similar stories and, and outlooks. Yeah, there's probably a, like a, a blog post out there somewhere. I just gotta go if find. If we have this much information about the carousel horses, <laughs> right? What about Chief White Horse? That's the one horse you don't have. So in 1972, uh, the Indian village became bear country. Mm-hmm. With the anticipation of the Country Bear Jamboree opening three weeks later. Um, And then in 1988, it was renamed Critter Country because Splash Mountain was going to open the following year. Not just bears in that one. Yeah, so there was a lot of work that happened to get rid of a lot of the bear theming (laughs) to add in other animals. Country Bear Jamboree in Disneyland has since closed. Mm -hmm. Don't worry, you can still see it at Magic Kingdom if you're... A super fan. I think Tokyo has it, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Um, now <laughs> it's a Winnie the Pooh ride. So there's still bears. Lots of bears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, th- I think Frontierland probably had the most change since opening day, because it was like, they were trying to go for the whole historical village thing. Yeah. And a real cowboy life, and there was nothing to do there. No. But, like, ride on a wagon drawn by a horse and just look at it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they had to they had to add some things. Mm-hmm. At least Tomorrowland had the cars. Right. And the aluminum museum. <laughs> um, so some other early edition rides in 
August 1955, Dumbo opened, mm-hmm. um, which I feel like people often think of as like an opening day ride, but it was like a month later. Six weeks. Six weeks off. <laughs> um, June of 1956, uh, the Pirate's Lair on Tom Sawyer Island opened. Mm-hmm. And then um, in 1957, the Aunt Jemima pancake races started. The what now? <laughs> the Aunt Jemima's pancake races. I've never seen a pancake run, and I hope I never do. So this was apparently an annual event for a while down Main Street, where women would run carrying a griddle and a pancake, and they would have to flip it above a ribbon. And when I say a ribbon, not just like, oh, here's a ribbon, like a giant piece of fabric ribbon that Uh was like 10 feet in the air and catch their pancake. (laughs) And do this several times, and whoever made it back to the finish line first with an intact pancake won. What did they win? What's well, the prize? if they won, they gotta go represent California in the Nationals. So this was a thing. This so was there's a like, thing. There is somewhere in Illinois that used to do this. There is somewhere in Delaware that used to do this, presumably. Apparently. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Look at how high that rope is. That is a like they have to ribbon. leap and try to catch that pancake. It's like playing volleyball. <laughs> yeah, that is about the height of the top of a volleyball net. Yeah, yeah. you think like, oh wow, this is incredibly random. Mm-hmm. But there's like a connection, <laughs> of course. So from 1955 to 1962, there was the Aunt Jemima Pancake House. Of course, there's a sponsorship. There's always a sponsor tie-in, uh, which then became the Aunt Jemima Kitchen from 62 to 70, which is now the Riverbell Terrace. Okay. It was sponsored by Quaker Oats until the 70s, and throughout the 60s, Eileen Lewis, who portrayed Aunt Jemima would actually make appearances. So you could see the real, quote-unquote, Aunt Jemima. Yes. Like, the lady from the bottle and and the commercial would just say hi to you. Yes. That's amazing! Yeah, there is some, like, we think, like, oh, wow, the, like, time when Magic Kingdom opened, so much sponsorship. But look, we're already talking about Yeah, we talked about a lot with the the Jemima, too, yeah. There's, like, a really weird thing with, like, the Frito Boy. (laughs) <laughs> like that was a character and the there was Frito like a bandito there was like an animatronic frito boy <laughs> who like would give you fritos was this pre-bandito i don't really know the history of fritos mascots I, it was a little boy like a cowboy i like frito boy like there was a lot of marketing going on so in June of 1958 we got Alice in Wonderland and we got the sailing ship Columbia um, which was a full-scale replica of the, the Columbia Redaviva, uh, which was the first American ship to cir- circumnavigate the globe. Um, L- love that little bit of, like, American chauvinism. Yep. You couldn't get one of Magellan's boats. No. It probably wouldn't be big enough, actually, for the attraction. <laughs> no, we had to get this one. Um, the American one. Uh, Walt had decided that they needed more traffic on the river, um, so they wanted a, another large ship. Um, How much traffic can there be? It's know. on a track. We, we got the Mark Twain. We're adding a sailboat. We got those, we got like, the canoes. We got the canoes. We got the, the rafts. I'm the, like, how? 
back and forth from the. This is like too many things. The island, yeah. Too many. I guess because two of them, because this is going to be one of them, but like two of them are running on track, so I guess that makes it a little better. You've only got but, like 30 inches of water to work with. I don't know. <laughs> Joe Fowler, who was a Disneyland construction supervisor, mm-hmm. he's also a, a formal naval admiral, uh, he was asked to suggest historic sailing ships for an inspiration. Ah, so it's his fault. Uh, and he recommended this. Um, now, the thing is, is there is only one known picture in existence of it. So, so he's bad at his job. <laughs> So, WED researchers had to do a lot of work to figure out what it needed to look like. A lot of extrapolation. A lot of looking at the Library of Congress. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, for the ship's christening on June 4th, 1958, a follower dressed as a sailing captain from the 18th century, and the Mouseketeers were there, too, as his oh, crew. because by now... That show the was Mickey on. Mouse Mickey Club Mouse Club was on, was on yeah, as well. Yeah, so they okay. were all there. Yeah. Um, a cop- Annette. Yeah. We love Annette. Uh, you all know we love Annette. A copy of it was supposed to be made for uh, Disney World, but was canceled and replaced by a second steamboat instead. Mm. Um, and now, since you're all like, oh, that's a dumb boat to name it after, the Space <laughs> Shuttle Columbia is named after it as well. Yeah, but the Space Shuttle Columbia doesn't have to follow design documents that don't exist. <laughs> well, you're like, oh, Americana, we gotta be the best. I'm just saying. Um, it, it does sail on the rivers of America, I guess. Yeah. Not the rivers of Spain or Italy or anywhere else. Though I'm like, this thing didn't exactly sail on rivers. <laughs> it's true. It sailed on the oceans of the world. Yeah. Uh, New Orleans Square. This was announced in 1958 on a souvenir map. That is not an opening date thing. No. There was, there was no a, New Orleans There was Square. a New Orleans street. Oh, okay. There was a one little part of street that was New Orleans. Okay. But they made New Orleans Square. Um, construction began in 61. An incredible long-term planning. Yeah. We're just going to announce it low-key on a map coming soon. Yeah. Three years before you break ground? (laughs) Part of the area it is on was a nine-acre picnic ground called Holidayland, Mm -hmm. um, which was originally supposed to be a turn-of-the-century town park with a whole lot of different stuff going on, but it just became a picnic and recreation area. I still am tickled by the idea of Walt Disney going to one of these parks, deciding it sucks, and he needs to do something completely different and way better, and then including one inside (laughs) as a point of comparison. Like, see? See? You know, it had like a baseball field and volleyball thing, and it had mm-hmm. lots of picnic area, and it had its own entrance into the park. It and had a weird, funny smell you can't really well, identify. it didn't have bathrooms, apparently, and it didn't have lighting, and it had no attractions, so it closed in 1961. Sure, sure. Um, and they began construction on New Orleans Square, which did not open until 1966. Eight years. Eight years since the announcement. Five years in the building. Yeah. Now that is unusual. Five years to build something. Well, the park's already open. You're trying to keep stuff going. There's stuff going on. Right. So, um... Probably financial delays. Yeah. 
So the mayor of New Orleans was there um, for the dedication ceremony and announced that Walt was an honorary citizen of New Orleans. Ah, to be counted among the greats like Ignatius J. (laughs) Riley. And apparently, like, Walt said something of like, uh, oh, and it probably cost as much as, like, the Louisiana Purchase or something. It actually cost more than the Louisiana Purchase at the time. (laughs) Apparently. The Louisiana Purchase is famous for being dirt cheap. Yeah, yeah. But, like, a lot more. Like... (laughs) ton even with like inflation taking into account and everything like <laughs> a lot that ceremony though was uh walt's last public appearance at disneyland before oh, his death yeah. um, which would be a few months later yeah pirates of the caribbean would open the next year and the haunted mansion a couple years later so it just opened as like a place with some shops and some very pretty buildings and maybe a restaurant I guess. And people complain today. (laughs) So, uh, in 1959, um, there were real mermaids that appeared in the rocks and underwater in the Disneyland submarine lagoon. Yeah? Yeah. A bunch of actual monkeys sewn to halves of fish? No, these are like ladies who dressed as mermaids and swam around. Oh, that makes more sense. Yeah. Um, they would actually appear several times um, over the next decade, just like <laughs> randomly for a while. Like, oh, there's mermaids, and now there's not. It's kind of weird. I do like the phrasing that makes it sound like it was a mystic occurrence and, and not <laughs> paid performers they, coming for certain They got lost. They went through the wrong s- sewer pipe. Trying to find the ocean, but like... A mermaid laid eggs that somehow got swept into Anaheim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The reason they came and went is because of mermaids' famously short lifespans. (laughs) They're like cicadas. They're like, (laughs) the eggs have to stay around for a while, and then they all hatch and come out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then they lay more eggs, and they die, and they gotta wait like another eight years or whatever. They also make the same noise. It's very (laughs) distracting. Um, so some other additions, uh, that have come since then, Mm -hmm. uh, Mickey's Toontown was added in 1993, which was actually several years after it opened in the Magic Kingdom. Yeah. It does still exist, though. Yeah, but this one's permanent, yeah. (laughs) Uh, and just this year, we got Star Wars Galaxy Edge. Yeah. Yeah, the latest of the ever-changing aspects of the park. So- Galaxy's Edge is the third new land introduced, or fourth, Bear Country. Bear Country. Into Critter Country. Yeah, same thing. New Orleans Square. New Orleans Square, Toontown. Galaxy's Galaxy's Edge Edge is number four. Uh Uh-huh. And then there's a whole other park that we're not even talking about right now. Because that's, I guess, something different. Yeah. There's some hotels there. There's a lot of other stuff. This is a very long series. There's 64 years. There is a sense in which... Disneyland is the the laboratory, uh, or you could say it in an even more like belittling way, the, the dress rehearsal for Magic Kingdom and Disney World as a whole. Kind of. Kind of. I mean, it, it, it is. There, there are elements of that, as well as it being, you know, its own thing, the happiest place on earth. Mm. The, the first theme park, certainly the uh, grandest and most ambitious theme park at the time of its building. Don't want this to come off as like a, oh, well, don't, because I haven't been there. Like, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. But I think what's, you know, always interesting with it is that 
Disneyland was built so long ago mm-hmm. with this plan, not really knowing how crazy it was going to get and popular. <laughs> and like they're having to change and evolve, but at the same time, they only have like so much land to do it on. Yes. And they have to deal with what was put in place first. Where Magic Kingdom, they knew yeah. what it they were getting into when they started it. <laughs> The only costs of expansion are the the construction costs. Yeah, and yeah. Um, so I, it's just interesting to kind of like compare the two and what what expansions are actually replacements mm-hmm. in some places compared mm-hmm. to actually mm-hmm. like expanding. And an, an interesting thing about Disneyland that we we touched on a little bit in like the subtext in between the lines, but how much turnover there is in Disneyland, especially the early years. Oh gosh, there's. Like, there's so many things I did not talk about in this. I f- because I f- they lasted like eight months. That That's exactly it. It's like there's all these things that existed for like such a tiny period of time that it's like, well, was that even really a thing? Like, Was the, that even an attraction? The These parks and all parks are in a constant state of development, uh, refurbishing things, replacing things, expansions, acquisitions. But like in those early days, it was just... There were three Autopias at one time for at for a period. No one could understand why. Mm-hmm. What is the point? Yeah. Or the fact that there was just like, okay, you can ride down a car. Now you can ride in a carriage. Now you can ride in a covered wagon. Like, there was a lot of just like little weird things. Just sit in a moving thing and look at it. Yeah. Just look at it. Yes. You like Davy Crockett, right? Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. I just hit the dog accidentally singing. I got too into it. Sorry, puppy. But that sense of of turnover and experimentation Mm -hmm. uh, just really lays out the the old Walt quote that we must have brought up several times over the years. Yeah. Uh, How everything, how it, it. can't Keep stay still. Forward. It is continually in a state of evolving. Oh. It will never be finished. Yeah. Yeah. I do feel like I need to do another episode that just looks at some of the weird stuff of the 50s and 60s, though. <laughs> like these weird partnerships with Frito Boy and Aunt Jemima and stuff. Mm-hmm. They had like a parade that was like John Deere. <laughs> like, there's weird stuff. I want to, like, that. I think that just needs to be its own episode. Like, let's just talk about the weirdest partnerships that ever existed. Yeah, I I mean, I also did like uh, seeing how sponsored it was. Like, this is people give Disney World crap. There's a it's is a very it's a very expensive undertaking that needed a lot of money fast because they built it in literally a year. What on earth? (laughs) No wonder why everything was a mess. You couldn't do that nowadays. You could not pass the inspections. You you need a sponsorship to survive. So thank you, Aunt Jemima. But I suppose everybody's been waiting because with a lot of our travel episodes, they end with a special surprise. So yes, I can announce that we have no plans to go to Disneyland or or anywhere in Southern California for that matter. No. In the foreseeable future. Gotcha. So we're going to take a break and read some letters.
Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for sticking around. That one went long, huh? It always does. Let's see how much longer it goes with our letters. The first letter we have to read is from Claritic, and she answers our prompt for this episode, which was, dear... Favorite thing that didn't go as planned. Disneyland opening didn't go as planned, in case you didn't get the connection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and hers is the, the story of Rocco's modern life. A sort of real-life uh, counterpart to the whole producer's scam. Except not so much a scam. Just someone failing at failure. The story goes that Joe Murray was just looking to get a quick buck by uh, submitting a, a, a pitch and a pilot uh, that he hoped would not be accepted so he could put that money toward his real project, a feature film called My Dog Zero. The problem is, they really liked it, and they paid him a lot more money to actually make the dang show. Yeah. He came to really dislike working on this show, first because it was, in part, a mistake that went too far, and keeping him from his, his dream job. But also, tragically, uh, his wife committed suicide during the production of Rocco's Modern Life, and so they were kind of tied up, uh, you know, in his mind, uh, and the the schedule of making what went on to be season after season of a, a animated show kept him from having the time to work on his personal life. He eventually just passed on his show running duties to uh, Steven Hillenberg, who would later go on to greater fame as the creator of SpongeBob SquarePants. Mm -hmm. there, there's a, a little bit of art imitating life in the uh, Rocco's Modern Life episode, Wacky Deli, where a cartoonist creates a deliberately weird and terrible show in a plan to, like, well, they'll have to fire me and then I can leave this rotten industry. And, of course, it gets picked up and, you know, the, the plot happens. Yeah. She ends her letter by saying that the, the new Netflix special for Rocco's Modern Life is pretty good. Should check it out. She liked it. Thanks, Claritic. Uh, Isaac writes in... So Isaac's uh, response to a uh, thing that didn't go as planned uh, has to do with the show The Expanse and something that happens in the first or an early episode. Not sure. I don't want to give a spoiler away, but something that causes all this stuff to happen. And he's very glad it did because it led to it being his favorite sci-fi show ever. I'm, so, like, watch it. There, There's a lot of drama in the you know, mistakes. Yes. Mistakes are where stories come from, so that makes sense. Good, yes. Good job, The Expanse. I've heard good things. And Just haven't watched it. You know what else is a good thing? Huh. Isaac's cat. Yeah. Isaac shares lots of cat pictures of Hollis. Now, Hollis is very cute little kitty. I like him. Kitty good. Or she. <laughs> it's a she. Thank you. It's very cute she kitty. Lady <laughs> Thank kitty. you for your cute <laughs> she kitty. <laughs> Tired. <laughs> Thanks, Isaac. Lord Smaff writes in with uh, something local to him, at least. The Royal Warship Vasa. It was commissioned by King Gustav II uh, to be his personal flagship. It was one of the most powerful warships ever built. And on its maiden voyage, there was a little bit of a wind. And so it, it, lists, it listed a little bit, which led to water flowing into a cannon port. And so it started sinking immediately 
But the wreckage was in great shape, and uh, now, after a lifetime of service, it's a popular tourist attraction. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. Thanks, Lord Smith. Maria writes in uh, and shares some very adorable birds. Yes. Yes. Uh, And also answers our prompt. And her favorite thing that did not go as planned was... So a year ago, she was in Sweden uh, visiting... um, significant other that she was dating at the time uh and knew that they were going to get engaged sometime on this trip Mm -hmm. uh and kept just waiting for it to happen this whole day that they were walking around and kept thinking it was the moment and thinking it was the moment but it wasn't and then thought oh it's not gonna happen but then fiance proposed and it was her favorite thing that didn't go as planned oh yeah Marie also answers uh, an old prompt of favorite kind of cheese, uh, and that is uh, halloumi, and mm. and who who's whole host, which I have no idea what type of cheese that is, but I bet it's good. Who's whole host? My whole host. Yeah. Yum, 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 yum. Yeah. Thanks, Marie. I don't, I'm sure we could get it somewhere. You can get all cheeses. <laughs> Anson writes in from Sweden. Uh, also- You two are neighbors! You're- Relatively speaking, across the globe, your neighbors. And Anton's favorite cheese is Vasterboten, named for the province it's made in the north of Sweden. Other parts of the country try to make it, but they don't they don't do it right. You gotta get your Vasterboten from Vasterboten, or it's not really Vasterboten. Uh, his favorite circus act is the Clunes. Got gotta love the slapstick. Gotta love the whole, like, legacy of clowns. I've considered doing an episode on, like, the roots of clowning in medieval theater. Yeah. Maybe someday. Anton would be into it. I know that. I got at least one person on board. But for the current prompt, Anton's favorite thing that did not go as planned is Elfsborg's Old Fort, the most expensive building in all of Sweden. It was Sweden's only port to the west, built when uh, Denmark owned all of Scania and Halland, and the Norwegians owned the rest of the coast. So to guard the port, they built a big old fort. A fort port. A port fort. And they put a whole lot of money in there, and the Danish said, that's nice, uh, That we, we, we take that now. But the Swedes did not give up, and 100 years later, they retook the fort, and it didn't cost that much, aside from, you know, all the casualties in battle. Uh, And they held it for 19 years until the Danish took it back again. So Sweden had to fight to return it again. Uh, Only this time, the Danes burned it to the ground rather than hand it over. Uh, So Gustav I of Sweden came along and rebuilt it to its original grandeur, and the Danish took it again. So once and for all, the Swedes offered to buy it. And the Danish replied with an asking price of 150,000 silver pieces, which means uh, one-tenth of the the income of every single person in Sweden. But with that purchase, the Swedes then reinforced it, rehabilitated it, built it, and expanded it again until 1612, when the Danish took it again and sold it back for a million silver coins one-third of the state's whole income. Goodness. All over a fortress that they built themselves. Wow. Thanks, Anton. Uh, Sam writes in and uh, 
compliments our Milwaukee episode. Oh, thank um, you. Because it's always a joy to hear someone talk about their home state. Which um, I assume is Minnesota. My incredible deductive capabilities. Minnesota? Yes, I am a genius. You mean Wisconsin? No. <laughs> Too obvious. <laughs> Uh, they also suggest, uh, we sometimes visit Eau Claire, uh, which I'm glad you told me how that's pronounced because I've never actually heard someone say, oh, <laughs> as Eau Claire. It's always been you, Eau Claire. Eau Claire. I'm going to say that's like a weird Chicago thing. Sam's favorite thing that didn't go according to plan, uh, was when he auditioned for his school play his junior year of high school. Uh, he had never done theater before, uh, but had some friends who had participated, and it looked like it was fun. So uh, he auditioned for the next thing they were doing, which happened to be uh, South Pacific. Mm-hmm. And Gonna uh, wash that man right out of my hair, etc. Yeah. And he had never sung since his voice changed and figured, well, I might be able to get like a non-singing role or the chorus, uh, but wound up getting the male lead and finding out that he had an operatic singing voice. Uh, and that completely changed the direction his life was heading. His favorite cheese, uh, has already mentioned cheese curds. Um, you gotta get the squeaky ones. Yeah. Uh, though not the sour cream and onion ones that we opened today. <laughs> that is just cheese curd soaked in onion. Not good. I mean, it's on the label. What did we expect? Really, it's my I fault. I expected more sour cream. I expected <laughs> it to have the taste of a potato chip. Sam wants to point out, though, that uh, he music directed a show earlier this year called Cheeseheads the Musical that took place in a cheese factory. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, Favorite circus act is Tom Waits. Might not actually be a circus act, but... (laughs) Yeah, he's he's not, actually. He's just not. He's been apparently adapting carnival sounds into his music since the 80s. So, so there you go. Uh, and an honorable mention is the cast of it's the cast of Pagliacci, their second favorite opera. Uh, favorite robot Marvin from the Hitchhiker's Guide. Also wants to give a shout out uh, to their their favorite Superbot Wars fight because someone else mentioned those, uh, and that would be Battlebots fight between Biohazard versus Son of Wyachi. Yeah. That was yeah, good. That, you know that, was, that one? Yes, I know that one. <laughs> okay. I was a Ziggo guy. Like, I really liked the lightweight division, but, like, the, the heavyweight division had some really dramatic fights. I really didn't know this had such a following. <laughs> uh, favorite train, the high-speed train that was supposed to be built between Madison, Milwaukee, and Chicago, but then the governor canceled it. Scott Walker, specifically. Yes. Of the three governors involved. Yes. We also got some really cute pictures of Daisy and Daisy's a puppy. Daisy's a puppy, yes. Oh, I like Daisy. Very small puppy at Very the time small of little photography. Bean. So cute. There were sunglasses for scale. It was so small. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Our last letter this episode comes from Millennial, who has finally caught up on all 80-plus episodes. Congratulations. And they've decided to celebrate by writing in to answer two of those many, many <gasps> prompts. The first is, because it's apparently a vote now, one more person saying Wally is the best yes! robot. And for a favorite thing that did not go to plan is the AI for Gandhi in the Civilization series of video games. 
Now, in the first game, this was a mistake. Uh, Gandhi was set to have the lowest possible aggression score. But as time moves on, as your civilization advances, there are events that reduce uh, aggression even further. This caused an overflow era, uh, which meant that Gandhi would suddenly become the most aggressive world leader <laughs> possible. Yeah. So later games uh, fixed that problem, but kept it as like a joke, which is that Gandhi, very peaceful, super chill, loves nukes, though. Absolutely <laughs> loves them. So thank you very much for, for writing and listening to Willennial and everybody else. Mm-hmm. Do you have a prompt for us? Oh, we're mixing things up, huh? Yeah. Yeah. For our next episode, I want to hear people tell me what they did for Labor Day. Oh, okay. When you're listening to this, that's yesterday or earlier. Uh Uh-huh. So it should be a recent memory. (laughs) Yeah. And those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Yes, they can. Uh, along with any stories or questions or, or corrections or anything else you might like to have read on the air, including hearing us gush over your your uh, colorful birds or your tiny puppy that could fit inside a baseball cap. Yes, we have a tiny puppy that really wants a tiny ball, but she has to wait till we're done. Again, all those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, and all of those are at History Honeys. Very nice places to be. Uh, while we're out there, we do ask from the bottom of our heart for a rating and review on uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or any other catcher that allows for the option. Yes. Uh, and also, uh, just telling a friend about the show, what you enjoyed about it. Uh, goes a long way to, to helping us grow, helping us find our people. And then those people send us pictures of, of their fluffy cats sticking their leg out as they nap. Yes. 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 So really, it's a win-win. Yeah. I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your, your honey. Go get the ball. Go get the ball. Go, go get the ball. Good girl. She's so happy. So happy.